Hello, everybody. I'm Kay. Cheerios, love. I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. So, Key, on this episode, what should we not talk about? Well, first of all, let's not talk about these horrible British accents we're trying to do. To do. Very offensive. Very. But what we should talk about are crimes that have taken place across the pond. Across the pond? Yes, what our lovely British-English cohorts call the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a, you know, you throw a, stone, throw a stone across that. It's just a pond. So, that's what we're talking about today. We're going to take it back to America's whatever England is to us now. Distant cousin. I would say so, yeah. Great-great-grandmother. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> so, we are on episode 11. Episode 11. On the way to heaven. 11 in heaven. One of the best characters in Stranger Things. Yes, Elle. Yes, she's badass. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for season four. That's crazy. I can't believe they're around season four. Yeah, and I think this is the last season. There'll be other good. There'll be on other good stuff though. Yeah, yeah. Netflix puts out some good shows. They do. So, without further ado, love, let's get started. Gather on, everyone. Children included. It's time for a tale of crime. 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 So, my case today. This is the case. That made me a true crime fanatic. Really? Yes. This is the case I talked about in our intro. For anyone who uh, listened to our intro. If not, it's only about four or five minutes. Yeah, the welcome to episode. Yes. So, this is the guy. And who was that guy? Might you ask? Who was that guy? That was Dennis Nielsen. Now, Dennis Nielsen was a serial killer who was born November 23rd, 1945, in Fraserburg, Scotland. His parents' marriage was an unhappy one, and as a result, Nielsen, his mother, and siblings lived with his maternal grandfather, whom Nielsen adored. Nielsen claimed that his beloved grandfather's unexpected, unexpected death when he was just six years old and the traumatizing viewing of his corpse at the funeral is what led to his later behavioral psychopathy. Psychopathology. Psychopathology. Yeah, I definitely just read that word wrong. His mother went on to remarry and have four more children, leaving Nielsen a withdrawn and lonely child. So at 16, he enlisted in the army. Which is quite young. That is. That is young. He became a cook, serving as a butcher in the Army Catering Corps, learning the skills that would later serve him so well during his five-year killing spree. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. Upon leaving the Army in 1972, he took up police training, 
where he discovered a fascination with morgue visits and autopsy bodies. Despite the obvious advantages that police work gave to develop his morbid taste, he resigned and went on to become a recruitment interviewer. Now, Nilsson's first official brush with the police came in 1973. David Painter, a young man whom Nilsson had met through his work, claimed that Nelson had taken pictures of him while he was asleep. Okay, no, no, no weird. No, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit weird, but... It's a, it's a bro thing, you wouldn't get it. No, okay. So, Nelson was brought in for questioning about the incident, but was subsequently released without charge. So, you know, the police felt like, you know, it was okay to be taking pictures of people while they sleep. Allegedly. Allegedly. Hello. So, in 1975, he took up cohabitation with David Galachan in a garden apartment situated at 195 Melrose Avenue in North London, but Galachan denied that they had a relationship. Now, Nelson was a open homosexual, so Galachan obviously was not as comfortable and he was saying they were just roommates now this lasted for two years and when Galachan left Nelson's life began a downward spiral into alcohol and loneliness which culminated in his first murder 18 months later wow so he definitely took this what he considered a breakup very hard oh jeez now, Nelson became increasingly disturbed by his sexual encounters, which only seemed to reinforce his loneliness when they were over. Play sad. So, so sad. He met his first young victim in a pub on December 29, 1978, and invited him home, as he had on previous occasions. Now, the next morning, overcome by a desire to prevent the young man from leaving, he strangled him with a tie before drowning him in a bucket of water. Ouch. Taking the corpse to his bathroom to wash it, he then placed it back in his bed, later remarking that he found the corpse beautiful. Okay. It's um, quite disturbing so far. Yes, it, it gets more disturbing. You buckle up. Lovely. Lovely. Indeed. He attempted to have sex with the corpse, unsuccessfully, then spent the night sleeping next to the dead man. He finally hid the corpse under his floorboards for seven months before removing it and burning the decaying remains in his back garden. Yeah, corpse, corpses don't last that long, to my knowledge. No. I mean, because I know that if you leave meat out, it goes stale. It's the same thing in the body, right? Yeah. But so for the most part. Can you imagine the smell? Seven months. I'm sure he loved it. There's I bet he thought it was like a sweet aroma. A s sadly missing man mm -hmm. under his floorboards. Now, this is one thing that I want. I, I want to go to London just to see how in the hell was that accomplished. Yeah, how the houses were made. Yes, because how do you have floorboards that are big enough to accommodate a, a body? body? 
that you could lift, like you could lift the floorboards up. Now it says it was a garden apartment, which must mean something over there, right? Like other than the apartment has a garden. That's what I'm thinking. Like the apartment has a garden. Because like, he the did flat. Yeah, because he did burn the body in his garden. But uh, what are these floorboards like? How are these? How are they made? I'm I'm very curious. But this was like this was also like in the seventies at this point, right? Yes, yes, this was in seventy eight. So, if we ever get a listener in London, no, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put a positive spin on that. When we get a listener in London, if you have floorboards that open up, please send us a picture. We shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. Yes, please, please, please. We don't need to be a party to any of your weirdness. Okay, so back to the story. Nielsen had another close call with the police in October 1979 when a young student accused Nielsen of trying to strangle him during a bondage play session. Despite the student's claims, no charges were pressed against Nielsen. Now, I don't want to say this, but A, that was a red flag right there. And B, I feel like the police didn't take it seriously because it was two men. Yeah. I feel like that's a little bit to do with that. Now, Nielsen encountered his second victim, Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden, at a pub on December 3rd, 1979. Following a day of sightseeing and drinking, which ended at Nielsen's apartment, Nielsen again succumbed to his fears of abandonment and strangled Ockenden to death with an electrical cable. He cleaned up the corpse as he did before and shared the bed with it overnight. He took photos, engaged in sex, and finally deposited the corpse under the floorboards, removing it frequently and engaging in conversations as if Ockenden was still alive. This is, that's, this, is, this is crazy. This is very crazy so far. His third big victim, some five months later, was Martin Duffy, a homeless 16-year-old child whom he invited to spend the night on May 13, 1980. As with his first victim, Nelson strangled and then drowned him before bringing him back to bed and masturbating over the teenager's corpse. Duffy kept Duffy was kept in a wardrobe for two weeks, which for our non over the pond listeners, a wardrobe is a closet, basically. Maybe like a detached closet. So he was kept in a wardrobe for two weeks before joining Akadin under the floorboards. He was still down there. Like, it seems like he lives in an apartment. Why is nobody complaining about this? Right, right. So his next victim was prostitute Billy Sutherland, who was 27 who had the misfortune of following Nelson home one night. He too was strangled. Another one of his victims, 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow, was an 
orphan with learning disabilities who was soon also strangled. That's just awful. Dennis Nilsson is a, is a monster. By 1981, Nilsson had killed 12 men in his apartment, of whom only four could be identified. Given his penchant for preying on the homeless and the unemployed in a large city, this is probably less surprising than it might be in a smaller community. So he definitely preyed on the vulnerable and people who were less likely to be reported missing. Right. So Nilsson claimed he went into a killing trance and on seven occasions actually freed the men rather than complete the act because he was able to snap out of it. The majority of his victims were not so lucky. Now, by the time Barlow was killed, Nelson was forced to stuff him under the sink as he was rapidly running out of storage space with half a dozen bodies hidden around the apartment. Nelson, this is this is insane. He was forced to spray his rooms twice a day to be rid of the flies that were hatched from the decomposing bodies. And when his neighbors complained of the smell, so here we go, he convinced them they stemmed from structural problems with the building. I mean, I could see if these were new neighbors who moved in after he started doing this, and they'd be like, man, it just smells weird. And he'd be like, oh, structural problems, like the sewer is bad, it's horrible. But people who've lived there, and then all of a sudden it just starts smelling weird? Yeah, no. No, you're not convincing me. Yeah. So anyway, to get rid of the corpses, he would remove his clothing and dismember them on the stone kitchen floor with a large knife, sometimes also boiling the skulls to remove the flesh, also placing organs and viscera in plastic bags for disposal. He buried limbs in the garden and in the shed and stuffed torsos into suitcases until he could burn the remains in a bonfire at the end of his garden. Occasionally, he would burn fires all day without raising any suspicion from his neighbors. Maybe they just thought he was weird and he just burnt stuff. Like, you know, maybe they just was like... You know, sometimes you just accept your weird neighbor and just turn the eye to whatever they're doing. It's crazy. So he generally crushed the bones once the fire had consumed the flesh. And police actually ended up finding thousands of bone fragments in the garden during later forensic examinations. So, in 1982, whoop whoop, in a desperate attempt to stifle his homicidal behavior, Nelson turned himself in. Psych. He moved to a top floor apartment at 23 Craney Gardens, Muswell Hill, also in North London, which had no garden and no convenient floorboards. So I guess he thought that if there was no garden to burn bodies and no floorboards to put people under, he'd stop. Unfortunately, he was still unable to quell his impulses 
and a further three victims were killed in this apartment between his arrival and February of 1983. These victims were identified as John Howlett, Archibald Graham Allen, and Stephen Sinclair. And of course, with this being a top floor apartment, this presented Nielsen with a much greater disposal challenge. There was no direct access to outdoor space. So, you know, his other apartment was on the floor, straight out the door to the garden, boom, bang. Not this place. So he overcame these obstacles by boiling the heads, feet, and hands, dissecting the bodies into small pieces that could be flushed down the toilet and disposed in plastic bags. Oh my goodness. Now there were five other tenants at Cranley Gardens, none of whom knew Nielsen very well. And in February 1983, one of them called out drain specialist Dino Rod. <laughs> I see what you're doing there, Dino Rod. Y'all are nasty. <laughs> nasty. To investigate a drain blockage. In the presence of the tenants, including Nielsen, the technician discovered rotting human remains when he descended via the outdoor manhole, and it was decided that a full inspection would be conducted the next day, after which the police would be called in to investigate. I imagine the guy coming in and saying, oh, hell no, there's a body parts in here. These are, these are guts. This is someone's heart. So, Nielsen now increasingly aware of the prospect of capture, tried to cover his tracks by removing the human tissue from the drains that night, but was spotted by the downstairs tenant who became suspicious of his actions. It was reported that on the morning of February 9, 1983, he told a work colleague, Lathley, if I'm not in tomorrow, I'll either be ill, dead, or in jail. Dennis, not the time. Not the time, Dennis. Nelson, who was met on the evening of Friday, February 9th, by Detective Chief Inspector Jay, whom informed him that they wished to question him in relation to the human remains that had been discovered in the drains. Upon entering the apartment, Jay noticed the pervasive foul odor and asked Nielsen what it was, at which point he calmly confessed that what they were looking for was stored in bags around the apartment, which included two dismembered heads and other larger body parts. So he just really gave it up. Like as soon as they were like, "What's that smell?" Oh my gosh, their body parts <laughs> all over. Like looking that bag, that bag over there. Like <laughs> he he was very very forthcoming. Obviously, Dennis sucks in like all regards. He sucks so much. Horrible, horrible. My think like uh, my fascination with this is the whole flushing people down the toilet. Like, what made you? Some people really think toilets go like to just the abyss. They really think that toys don't clog or 
don't like you know oh, i don't know i don't know it's like what what was his was that your plan sir like okay i'm gonna get a top apartment so i'll stop murdering top apartment i'm not stop murdering <laughs> okay so here's what i'm gonna do like he really didn't think this out i'm still stuck on like the the flies hatching from the eggs of the bodies I'm still, I'm still all on that part. Like, that's just such a gross scene for me. Like, how could you just live in that? Oh, no. I don't even like opening my trash can outside. Like, yeah. ugh. So what Dennis is saying is that, like, him saying his grandfather's open casket is what made him, like, yes. trigger this in him. Yes. No. That's what he's trying to blame this on. So, upon his arrest, he immediately provided exhaustive details about his killing spree admitting to killing 15 young men despite receiving legal caution. He also admitted to the attempted murder of seven others, the ones that he snapped out of it and let go, although he could only name four of them. At no point did he show any remorse and appeared eager to assist the police with amassing evidence against him, even taking them to his old address to point out specific disposal details. After the confession, Nielsen was held at Brixton Prison pending trial. While there, he wrote over 50-50 notebooks of his memories to assist the prosecution. Wow. And also drew what he referred to as sad sketches, which detailed his treatment of some of his victims. He seemed ambivalent, ambivalent about his fate. At turns without remorse and then showing concern about public attitudes toward him. He fired his legal counsel, then rehired him, and then fired him once again <laughs> shortly before his trial. His trial began on October 24th, 1983. He was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. He pled not guilty to all charges, citing diminished responsibility due to mental defect. Now, I must say, you do have to have something terribly wrong with you to do these types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Does that mean you should not be legally held responsible? Definitely not. I don't think so. But I definitely agree that he had some type of mental defect. The prosecution relied primarily on the extensive interview notes that resulted from his arrest, which took them over four hours to read verbatim to the jury, mm. as well as testimony of the three victims, Paul Nobbs, Douglas Stewart, and Carl Stodder, who had managed to escape, and all of whom he had attempted to strangle. Despite attempts by Nelson's defense to undermine the testimony of these victims by introducing their evidence of their sexual account encounters with Nelson, so again, victim shaming based on their sexual preference, their harrowing accounts inflicted serious damage on the defense's case. Physical evidence included photographs of the murder scenes as well as the chopping board used to dissect the victims, 
and the cooking pot used to boil the skull's feet and hands, which is now on display at the Black Museum in Scotland Yard. That's nasty. Which I am willing to admit, I want to go to this Black Museum in Scotland Yard. I'm willing to go also, but not to look at this. I think it's all like dark, murdery stuff there. We'll have to Google it. Okay, okay. The defense case relied primarily on testimony of two psychiatrists, Dr. James McKeith and Dr. Patrick Galloway. McKeith described Nelson's troubled childhood, inability to express feelings, and the resulting separation of mental function from physical behavior, which affected his own sense of identity and implied an impaired responsibility on the part of Nelson. Under intense cross-examination by the prosecution, however, McKeith was forced to retract his judgment about diminished responsibility. The second psychiatrist, Galway, diagnosed Nielsen as suffering from a false self syndrome characterized by outbreaks of schizoid disturbances, which made him incapable of premeditation. But most of his testimony was extremely technical, even giving the judge calls to question Galway's complex diagnosis. So even the judge wasn't buying what Galway was selling out there. Well, good. The prosecution called Dr. Paul Bowden as rebuttal psychiatrist, who had spent considerable time with Nelson, finding no evidence for much of the testimony put forth by defense psychiatrists. He stated that Nelson was manipulative with some signs of mental abnormality, but nevertheless still cognizant of and responsible for his actions. Damn it, Dr. Paul Bowden, I agree. <laughs> exactly. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do play one on this podcast. And I concur with Dr. Bowden. I do see signs of mental abnormality, lots of manipulation, but he was cognizant and definitely responsible for his actions. Absolutely. Now, now during, during the summing up, the judge dispensed with the majority of the psychiatric jargon that had perplexed the jury by instructing them that a mind can be evil without being abnormal. The jury retired on November 3rd, 1983, but were unable to reach a unanimous verdict. The following day, the judge agreed to accept a majority verdict and they delivered a verdict of guilty on all six counts of murder. The judge sentenced Dennis Nielsen to life in prison without the eligibility of parole for at least 25 years. Wow. So after 25 years, he was eligible for parole. Nelson died in prison in 2018. And that was my story. The moral of the story is if you're going to be a killer, don't flush people down the toilet. Nope. Do not. That's an amateur move. Especially if you're living the top floor. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But he only got he only got charged for six accounts of murder and then three of, of attempted murder. But he killed dozens. 
He killed 15. He admitted to killing 15 and trying to kill 7. But I'm believing that since these were homeless people and things of that nature, he probably couldn't say for sure who some of the people were and they couldn't prove who those people were. So they only went with who they could prove. Wow. Which is sad because all the victims are important. They're all people and they all count. I'm glad that he did get convicted. Even though here in America, we do not take a majority verdict. It's all or nothing. So he would have got off on a mistrial. Ugh. Crazy. But I'm glad he got convicted also. Yes, and he died behind bars. He did not get that parole after 25 years. Thank goodness. Good, good. Well, Key, that was a case that got you into true crime. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot to take in right there. Oh, yeah. Just think my little seven, eight-year-old brain reading this and being like, oh, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, seriously. No I wonder Graham hid that book from me so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> She was, she was trying to do her part. <laughs> kudos to you, Mom. It didn't work, but kudos for you trying. Yeah, like you can't stop the inevitable. So it's going to happen. All right, then. Let's, uh, let's take this uh, double-decker to a different section of town. And we will talk about the assassination of Ari Neve. Ari Neve. Ari Middleton Sheffield Neve was born January 23rd, 1916 in Knightsbridge, London. He was a public figure, war hero, writer, barrister, and politician. Neve spent his early years in Knightsbridge in London before moving to Beaconsfield. Neve was sent to St. Ronan's School and from there in 1929 he went to Eton College. So real quick, if you're keeping track right now, he was born in 1916, and he went to college in 1929. So he was 13 years old. Jeez. But this is a college for 13 to 19-year-olds. So basically high school. Yeah. it's, it's like, They do it differently there. He then went on to study legal theory at the House of College of Scholars of Merton in the University of Oxford. And that one's actually a uni. So that one's actually college. So what we call college, they call university. What we call high school, they They call call college. college. Yeah. Neve composed a prize-winning essay in 1933 that that examined the likely consequences of Adolf Hitler's rise to supreme power in Germany. And Neve predicted that another another widespread war would break out in, in Europe in the near future. Neve had earlier been on a visit to Germany, and he witnessed the Nazi German methods of grasping poli- political and military power. At Eton, Neve served in, in the school cadet corps as a cadet lance corporal and received a territorial commission as a second lieutenant in the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry on December, 9, December 11, 1935. When Neve went to Oxford University, he purchased and read the entire written works of writer Carl von Clausewitz. When Neve asked, when Neve was asked why, he answered, "Since since war is coming, it is only sensible to learn as much as possible about the art of waging it." 
during 1938, Beaver completed his third his third class degree. By his own admission, while at Oxford University, he did only the minimum amount of academic work that was required of him, to, of him by his tutors. Now, he goes to the armed forces. Meave transferred his territorial commission to the Royal Engineers on May 2nd, 1938. And following the outbreak of the war, he was mobilized. Sent to France in February 1940 with the 1st Searchlight Regiment, Royal, Royal Artillery. He was wounded and captured by the Germans at Carlisle on May 23rd, 1940. I have a sneaking suspicion that's not how you really pronounce that. I think you might be right. He was imprisoned at Oflag 9-A, H near Spagenberg Spartanburg Spartanburg in the house Spagenberg and and in February and a year later he was moved to Stalag 20 dash a near Thorn in German occupied western Poland meanwhile Nee's commission was transferred no that's, that's wrong that's wrong sorry about that I'll do that part over in April 1941, he escaped from Thorne with Norman Forbes. They were captured near Ilo while trying to enter Soviet-controlled Poland and were briefly in the hands of the Gestapo. 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 <laughs> Come on, you haven't seen Inglorious Bastards. What are you doing with your life? I've seen it. It's been such a long time, though. I forgot what the Gestapo was. In May, they were, they were both sent to Oflag 4-C, often referred to as Kodite's Castle, because of its location. And this was like the crazy, this was like the craziest, like, Nazi prison, uh, like, prison of war camp. Because it was literally a castle. It was literally a castle, and, and, and what happened is like, a, it was like built on a cliff, so escaping it was like near impossible. But he tried escaping it twice. First time he, um, he he tried to escape, uh, he was disguised as a as like a non a non combatant like Nazi officer, and they caught him. <laughs> <laughs> this is just like back to Inglorious Bastards. How did they catch the British guy who was posing as a German officer? First of all, his accent. He was British, speaking perfect German, but one of the Nazi SS men was in the back listening to him and was like, huh, your accent, very strange. Where are you from? So I feel like this is how they kind of went down. He's like, like, duh. And they're like, wait a minute. (laughs) You don't sound like you're from here. Where are you from? He took off running. (laughs) For real. For real, because like, because like what it says right here is like he did not get out of the castle as his hastily contra- contrived German uniform was rendered bright was rendered bright green under the prison searchlights, so it was like the wrong color. <laughs> and then he made a second attempt in January 1942, so like a couple months later. Better uniforms and escape route got them out of the prison, and by train and on foot they traveled to 
Leipzig and Ulm, and finally reached the border of Switzerland near Singen. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So they got out of there. So, via France, Spain, and Gibraltar. Gibraltar? Gibraltar. Like Gibraltar? Yeah, Gibraltar. <laughs> Neve returned to England in April of 1942. Neve was the first British officer to escape from Colditz Castle. On in May 1942, shortly after his return to England, he was decorated with the Military Cross. Good on you, Neve. Good on you. Yeah, Neve, Neve's doing a pretty good job. He was subsequently promoted to War Substantive's Captain into the permanent rank of Captain on April of 1945. A temporary major at the war's end, he was appointed to... Uh, the, he was appointed to an M, MBE, which is a military division, on August 30th, 1945, and was awarded the DSO on October 18th. You know what DSO is? DSO. I do not. It is the Distinguished Service Order. Hot damn, these. So it's like probably like uh, our military's Purple Heart. Yeah, yeah. It's similar to that. All right, and as a result of that, the, an earlier MBE appointment was canceled on October 25th, 1945. So that was that part of it. And now, <laughs> the next the next journey for him was to in politics. So Neve stood at the Neve stood for the Conservative Party at the 1950 election. He was elected for a Bingdon and in a by-election in June 1953. But his career was held back by a heart attack he suffered um, later, like later in the years, like in 1959. He was a governor of Imperial College between 1963 and 1971, and was a member of the House of Commons Select Committee on Science and Technology between 1965 and 1970. He was on the governing body of the Abingdon School from 1953 to 1979. So he was doing a lot around this time. Yeah, but so far the only crime he's committed was being colorblind trying to escape in a bright green <laughs> uniform. Yeah. Eckerd Heath was alleged to have to have told Neve that after after he suffered his heart attack, his career was finished. He admitted that in nineteen in December nineteen seventy four, Neve told him to stand down for the good of the party. During the final two months of nineteen seventy four, Neve had asked Keith Joseph, William Whitelaw, and Edgar Duquan to stand against Heath, and said that in the case of any of them challenging the Florida party leadership, he would be their their campaign manager. All three refused, and Neve agreed to be the campaign manager for Margaret Thatcher's attempt to become leader of the Conservative Party, which became successful. When Thatcher was elected in February 1975, Neve was rewarded by becoming head of her private office. He was then appointed Shadow Secretary of State for the Nor- for Northern Ireland. Shadow Secretary of State, that sounds so cool. That does sound cool. In opposition, Neve was a strong supporter of Roy Mason, who had extended the policy of, ready for this, Ulster Station. What is that? Ulster Station refers, refers to one part of a three-part strategy 
of the British government during the conflict as known as the Troubles. The strategy was to disengage the non-Ulster regiments of the British Army as much as possible from the duties in Northern Ireland and replace them with members of the locally recruited Royal Ulster Constabulary and Ulster Defense Regiment. I still don't know what this is, though. So. Same, same, same. Anyway. Neva's author, Eve was author of the new and radical conservative policy in a, of abandoning devolution in Northern Ireland, if there was any early progress in that regard, and concentrating on local government reform instead. The, the integ... The integral the, the integralist party, the integralist policy was hastily abandoned by Humphrey Atkins, who became Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. The role Neve has shadowed. Politician Tony Benn said in his diary that a journalist from the New Statesman told him that he received information from an intelligence agents agent from an intelligence agent that Neve that Neve had planned to have been assassinated if the election of Labour camp Labour government resigned and there was a possibility of Ben might be elected in his place. Dear diary, you'll never believe what I was told today. Like, okay, so Neve is gonna have <laughs> really in his diary. In his diary. I mean come on the British people are they they take much purer people. They're much more old fashioned people. You know? I could see him laying on his bed on his stomach, legs bent Ankles crossed, feet in the air, hair in a side ponytail, writing about these rumors that he's been told. He doesn't have a quill, but he has a neon colored pen with like a feather boa on the top. And his diary has a lock on it. And the key to the lock he wears on a necklace. Yeah, you you giving Tony Ben the legally blonde treatment. Like he is, sir. I mean, I mean that that's the most gossipist sentence I've ever wrote. Like he wrote it in his diary. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with keeping a diary. I am just saying, if a political somebody told you. Another political somebody was trying to assassinate another political somebody. Don't write in your diary. Tell somebody. Yes, yes. Tell someone. Oh, my gosh. Stop the assassination. <laughs> so the journalist said that, this, that the agent was ready to give up his name and that the new statesman was going to print the story. Ben, however, discounted the validation, the, valid, the validity of the story writing in his diary. No one will believe for a moment that Airy Knave will would have done such a thing. Airy Knave is a fugly like come on, what is this? Yo, he what listen, is this? Listen, listen. He got a diary for uh, as a president and he said, I'm gonna take this seriously. I'm gonna write everything I need to write in it. And what's he doing? He's writing the important stuff in it. He's using his diary like he intended to use it. Everybody loves Airy Knave. I hate Airy Knave. That bitch is trying to assassinate. <laughs> really? Really? This is where we're at now. Hmm. So, uh, kickstarting the story off. Well, not kickstarting it off. But uh, adding the salute to make this story explode a little bit. 
the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA, and its political wing, the Irish Republican Socialist Party, was formed at a meeting in a Dublin hotel in December 1974. In 1975, it began carrying out paramilitary campaign in Northern Ireland on British government facilities and officials with a, with a strategic objective of removing Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom using the front name of the People's Liberation Army. People's Liberation Army. I've heard of them. Yeah? Yeah. There are some badass Irish people, it seems. Through the 1970s, Neve an influential Tory member of the House of Commons, had been advocating within British political circles for an abandonment of the British government's strategy of a containment of Irish paramilitary violence in Northern Ireland against the British state. And for the, adapt for the adoption of strategy of waging a military offensive against it, seeking its martial defeat. That was a crazy run of the tenants. I apologize for that. This brought him to the attention of both the Provisional Irish Republican Army and the INLA as a potential threat to the organization and activities. A member of the INLA's leadership later stated, Neve was coming in, what, hold on. Neve was coming in on the hills of Mason to settle the northern problem. It made Mason look like a lamb. He wanted to bring in more special air service and take the war to the enemy. Well, that was a statement. Absolutely. You know, you know, you can imagine him saying that with like seven microphones up there and cameras flashing. He's like waving his fist around, looking everywhere. He's ready for this. After the Labour government's defeat in the House of Commons on the vote of no confidence in March 1979, a general election was called in the United Kingdom. And with the, and with the Conservative Party expected to win the election, Neve, as the party's shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, was set to become the new Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, which would place him in a position of governmental executive authority to bring his military strategy for the province into fruition. Stuff's about to get real. So he had the wheels in motion. No oh, yeah. wonder he was ready to assassinate somebody. Right. He's like, he's like, if I'm not coming on top, you're not. For sure. You in your diary. A political source in a Westminster hostel, in a Westminster hostel to Neve's statements on the security situation in Northern Ireland is believed to have passed on information to the INLA which gave it the means to carry out the assassination attack upon him with within the precincts of the Palace of Westminster. The information it had received gave it means of access to the House of Commons car park and the INLA decided to use a bomb with a, with a mercury tilt switch detonator which would explode when the device was at a certain acute angle on the House of Commons car park ramp, as it lacked information on Neve's movement for you know for them to use a time bomb, like, like they couldn't set a time bomb because they don't know when it's going to fetch his car. So on Friday, March 30th, 1979, two INLA paramilitaries gained entry to the House of Commons's underground car park, posing as workmen, carrying the bomb in a toolbox. Once they identified Neve's car and fixed a 16-ounce explosive device with a mercury tilt detonator on the floor panel under the driver's seat. Neve left the House of Commons a few minutes before 3 p.m. 
As he drove up the, under, the underground car park's exit ramp, the angle tilted the bomb's mercury switch and it exploded. The blast knocking Neve unconscious, severing both his legs, and trapping him in the mangled wreckage of the vehicle. Sweet baby Christmas on a cracker. Neve was cut free from the wreckage from the wreckage by by emergency services and rushed to Met, to Westminster Hospital by ambulance, dying there a few minutes after arrival, not having regained consciousness. Damn, Neve, I was rooting for you. you know, kind of, sorta. The INOA issued a statement regarding the attack in in the nineteen in the August nineteen seventy nine edition of its publication. The Starry Plo. In March, retired terrorist and supporter of the capital punishment, Ari Neve, got a taste of his own medicine when an INLA unit pulled off the operation of the decade and blew him to bits inside the impregnable palace of Westminster. The nauseous Margaret Thatcher sn- sniveled on television that he was in inaccountable loss and so he was to the British ruling class. They called him a retired terrorist? Wow. This man fought for his country. Like they would have been they would have been owned by the not like Germ- Nazi Germany if it wasn't for like people like Neve and like, you know, other soldiers in other countries helping in the war. And you know, now he's a terrorist. It's a soldier. What were they doing? They were probably they were probably still babies when the war was going on. Probably wasn't even born yet. It's crazy. That is crazy. Margaret Thatcher was due to broadcast to the nation that evening, but canceled her plans due to her grief at Neve's death. The House of Commons decided to resume its business less than an hour after the tragedy with Labor, Labor Chief Whip Michaels Cox and Conservative Norman St. John Steves taking the view that legislation should not be buckled by murdering thugs. Neve's death, came, Neve's death came just two days after the vote of no confidence was brought down Colligan's government and a month before the 1979 general election, which saw a conservative victory and Thatcher come to power as prime minister. Neve's wife, Diana, whom he married December 29, 1942, was subsequently elevated to the House of Lords as Baroness Airy of Abundant. Wow. See, they really know how to give out a title over there. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, there are some, some theories that came up from the uh, people inside. While working in a house of commons, as Patty Ashdown's research assistant, Kevin Cahill, claims to have had around six conversations with the security staff there, the most frequent remark was that everyone knew the story behind Neve's death, but no one could talk about it in detail because it would have been too dangerous. Cahill claimed that he did not believe the INLA killed Neve. Instead, it was an inside job. Concluding that Neve was killed by an MI6 agent working with the CIA because Neve sought to prosecute senior figures in the intelligence establishment for corruption. Hold on. How did they drag America into this? <laughs> like, we're over here. On our side of the pond. Our side of the pond. Minding our business. And all of a sudden, the CIA is tied up in this. I feel like we're being scapegoated. Oh, for sure. For sure. Cahill is just pointing fingers over here. I know what he's talking about. Okay, it could be an inside job. Okay, it could be MI6. 
America is just over here minding its own damn business. Yeah, we, we're we're done with our own stuff in 1979. We're dealing with our own killings and assassinations over here. Right. We we had a lot going on in '79. We were not involved in Neve's assassination. Yeah, we got time. Another person who did not accept the general accepted version of the events was Enoch Powell, the Ulster Unionist Member of Parliament. Powell claimed in an interview with The Guardian on January 9th, 1984, the Americans had killed Neve, along with Lord Mountbatten and Robert Bradford. He claimed the evidence came from the member of Royal Ulster's Constabulary with whom he had a conversation. Again! <laughs> why, why are we the scapegoat? I don't know. Like, like, what they have? Did somebody like, write that in their diary? <laughs> Dear diary, I think America's behind this. <laughs> and then also, he, he, he's, he's like, yeah, like a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary talked about it with me. Like, we had a conversation about it, so they had to have done it. They are jumping to conclusions. <laughs> they petty. That's what they are. And they're just mad that we're no longer under British rule, thanks to the the Boston Tea Party. And now they're finding any reason to keep England angry with us. Exactly. Lastly, on October 18th, 1986, Enoch Powell returned to the subject of Neve's definite speech to conservative students in Birmingham. He told them that the NILA had not killed Neve, but rather he had been assassinated by MI6 and their friends, quote-unquote. Paul saved Neve's Northern Ireland policy had been one of the integrations with the rest of the UK in that the Americas fear that this process, if, if implemented by Neve, would have been irreversible. His killing, alleged Powell, was intended to make the British government adopt the policy more acceptable to America in her aim to unite Ireland within NATO. So, all of a sudden, again. <laughs> so, I know what NATO is. That's the North American Treaty Organization. Mm-hmm. You know what? Um, I'm just going to let it go. Because I know America did not have anything to do with this. We had lots bigger fish to fry in 1979. This was not our... Let your country take responsibility for what they did. Right, yeah. Keep, the, keep a name out your mouth. Right. The Irish did this. Okay. End of story. They said it in their propaganda books and on TV. They're like, yeah, he got to his own medicine. What of it? Right. Uh, America didn't even like, be like, well, maybe they, no. Minded our business. And getting dragged through the mud. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the assassination of Ari Neve. Unfortunate that uh he was he was a very noble man through his life. He met an unfortunate demise through politics. Oh, yeah. You you like to get these good political ones. It's crazy, man, cuz I don't know anything about politics. A lot of what I read, I don't know what any of that stuff means. Well, shout out to Margaret Thatcher, the first female prime minister with the Conservative Party. Shout out to her breaking barriers, glass ceiling shattered. Boom. The future is female. <laughs> Shout out to Neve, who, 
you know, was trying. He was trying. To, to do good. And shout out to America who was just getting dragged into this mess for, for no reason. For real. Also, shout out to Australia because we need some listeners there. Shout out to Australia. Hope you, hope you all are doing well with... Good day, Mike. <laughs> hope you're all doing well down under. So, after that, let's bring this back up a bit. Okay. So, what's the the highlight of this week? I'll, I'll go first. Now, a lot of people don't like social media. But I will say, social media has given me one beautiful, lovely friend across the pond who is always just so uplifting and humorous. And if it were not for Facebook, we would have never connected because we we had one mutual friend in common and we end up connecting and becoming friends in our own right. It's been like 10 years. So shout out to Trevor, my lovey across the pond. Maybe one day we'll meet in real life. Shout out to Trevor. Nice. I actually have, I actually have a really good friend across the pond too. When I was in acting school, um, one of the sister schools in the United Kingdom uh, brought some of their students over and I made a great friend who is Matty Boys. He's one of the coolest kids at the time. He's a, he's a young adult now, but uh, he does filmmaking. He's really good at it. We, we bounce ideas off each other all the time. We give each other like, you know, tips and advice and stuff when we share it with each other. He's a really cool guy. I hope to see him again sometime. I'm sure I will. I'll go to the UK, hang out with him a little bit or something like that. But shout out to Maddie Boys. Shout out Maddie. Well, that was, you know, mine was very, very intense. Yours was not as intense, but, you know, bad. Yeah, it was bad. It, it, like, like for us Americans, it kind of triggered a what did we do kind of feeling. Very much so. I am still outraged. <laughs> but all in all, I say episode 11 was pretty good. Yes, it was. Crimes Across the Pond are also very interesting. They are. And they allow us to bring out our horrible British accents. Oh, anytime I get the moment to. Just think, they say that the people in New York are what Britons truly used to sound like. I kind of, I mean, I kind of feel like the South is what Britain used to sound like. Because, like, when you listen to some really country people, I mean, like, I don't know. They kind of sound like they can be from the United Kingdom. Not, I mean, like, I mean, like, not like, not like uneducated, like an educated Southern person, an educated country person. It's not like they can be from New England, like, from the UK. I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've heard it sometimes. I just felt it. I cannot attest for what his ears have heard. I personally have never experienced that. Mm-hmm. But you know, anyone who is familiar with the U.S. knows that like every region has strongly different accents. Yeah, it's crazy. It is crazy. We are a vast, vast melting pot. Mm-hmm. Can never get along, though, that's for sure. Absolutely not. Texas will secede from, <laughs> and, we, and yeah, we'll that, be our own country. I that, consider that, myself Texan. We will be our own country one day. Yeah, that big old splotch of a state. It's crazy. We were stolen fair and square, and we shall rise <laughs> and no longer be a part of this United States. It's 
Let's go ahead and end this before she starts singing the Texas like, <laughs> anthem or something. The stars at night, so big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. So, I guess this is it for episode 11. Can't wait to grace you guys with a new episode next week. Yes, it should be some exciting times for episode 12. Check out our Instagram, which I have been failing to mention the last couple episodes, WSTAT underscore podcast. That's also our Twitter. We also have a Facebook group that everybody's welcome to join. We share memes and talk about the episodes. And we have a website coming so that our hearing impaired brethren can read the transcripts of our podcast. Yes, yes. We want to be inclusive. Exactly. Inclusivity. And as always, if you have any thoughts or themes or crimes you want us to cover, we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com is our email address. You can always send us something or if you just want to send us some encouraging words or some feedback. Definitely holler at a player. Well, for we should talk about this, I'm B. And I'm Key. Thank you for listening. Cheerio, Governor.